Okay, if you've got a Bible, would you like to turn with me to Luke chapter 7? We're on a series of people who met with Jesus. We're going to look at the centurion. Um, I haven't been here for two weeks. Um, And it sounds mad, but things have changed. There are people that go, who's this bloke standing at the front? (laughs) Just to clear this up, I lead the church, all right? So we're all right. But, um, so what happened was the, the week before last, I was in Stafford um, at Wildwood Christian Fellowship preaching um, there. And uh, last week, I just did a runner and had a few days off, which is really bad because I don't know whether you, any of you have ever done this. Probably all of you have. Is that we went for coffee last Sunday morning at the Grosvenor Garden Centre whilst you were worshipping. And I have to honestly tell you this, I felt bad. I felt awful. And it was really bad. And I just kept thinking, no, this is wrong. But what I just thought was, actually, we've got work to do. And I looked at them and I thought, there's more in the Grosvenor than is here. So come on, guys, we need to... And they were worshipping plants. So we need, to, we need to work hard because we've got our work to do so that we can have more worshippers here. Amen? Okay, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to uh, 10. Um, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy uh, to have you to do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he's the one who helped us build the synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. This is not like church leadership, by the way. I've tried this. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at them. He would probably marvel if you obeyed me. But there we go. And Jesus marveled at these things, and he said to him, and turned to the crowd and followed, uh, um, uh, followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Okay, here we go. Some pretty things. You can just look at that and ignore me. Jesus had now finished his Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is what it refers to in this passage where it says all his sayings, and he enters into Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum would be... Jesus' HQ, that's what he was going to do. This is where he was going to base himself for a while. It was going to be the place of where he would go from and come back to in regard to his ministry. So in in, uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 and 16, 
uh, we read, and, having le- um, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. He bought a holiday home in the territory of the Zebulun and the Naphtali. So that which was spoken by the prophet of Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people uh, dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. So uh, what, we, what we have is that we have a prophetic move. Uh, it was prophesied that Jesus would move. So he's, re- he's moving, and again we see another prophetic word fulfilled. It was a deliberate move. It was a deliberate move to break the family ties and the connections with his hometown so that they didn't see him any longer as this guy from Nazareth, that they, they saw him as to be seen in a different light. It is very difficult, I can tell you that, to preach to your mom and dad. And, and uh, so he was breaking that so that he, would, he could begin his ministry. He knew that he, if he moved to another place, that people would be open to him. There's a, a Roman historian called Josephus, and Josephus records the area of Capernaum of having 204 villages. It's quite a lot, isn't it? And he says this, he said, there were no fewer than 15,000 people which makes me wonder whether he tried to count. What do you mean, no fewer? So he must have lost count at some time. And he says this, which is, I think is a great statement about the people of Capernaum. He said, they have never been destitute of courage. So you can get an idea of these people. And it says, but, he says, they are open to new ideas and new movements, which makes you wonder that Jesus also perceived this and went there because he was a people open. This was somewhere that would be very open to him. And it's here that we are going to look at the interaction of the Roman centurion. And what I'd like to do in today is look at three characters that are in this story. So we're going to look at the Jewish elders, we're going to look at the centurion, and then finally we're going to look at Jesus because that's where I want to finish up. So I'd like to introduce you uh, to the Jewish elders. That's the guy on the left with the blue hat, and, uh, so that you would know. The Jewish elders are asked to give a message to Jesus from the centurion that his slave was very sick. They think of him, the centurion, as a broker, as a, like a benefactor of the people. In verses 4 and 5, they say, He's worthy to have this, uh, to uh, you do this for him, because what do they say? He loves our nation, and he is the one who built the synagogue. That's their understanding of him. The centurion uh, was Rome's representative in the outpost of Capernaum, and he found himself stuck as an intermediary between. Uh, the demands of these locals, very parochial, and this empire of Rome. And he'd been stuck there, and he had to sort of work it between the two. And between him and the... So it was the, his people, as it were, and also the Jewish people. 
And here he, he, they were, he was, uh, this poor old, uh, the, these Jewish elders were sort of floating between these, these two people. And uh, they have convinced this centurion guy uh, to help them. And what we don't know is that we don't know whether he had uh, adopted their religion, which some of the centurions did do that. Uh, We don't know that. But he certainly had won a little bit of their favor. Or we might say that, um, that the Jewish leaders had actually persuaded him to do something for them. And the favor that he had done is that uh, he had identified with the nation and that he had secured some money from the empire of Rome uh, to go to the building of this synagogue. He had stuck his money in it and uh, therefore they were happy. So if Steve sticks some money in your pockets, you're all going to be happy. So the world hasn't changed uh, as it. And uh, what is interesting is that this favor and probably the favour of the people, was the factor that seemed to qualify Jesus to heal this centurion's slave in their eyes. The question really that was facing them, or the, 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 the thought pattern was simply this, this, this centurion deserves you to do this for him. That was the bottom line. Now, it's interesting, though, I don't know whether you read this in the passage, but later on, the centurion would say, I am not worthy. But the Jewish leaders thought he was worthy of a miracle. Let me just start at very basics here. I don't know where you are in your Christian walk. I don't know whether you've been a Christian for a long time. If you have, you just need to hear this again. I don't know whether you are not a Christian. I don't know whether you've been a Christian just a few days. or, or But let me just help you in regard to this issue. We deserve nothing from Jesus. Absolutely nothing. Everything that Jesus has done in our lives is because of his kindness, because of his grace, because of him. And it's his grace in my life and not my works and not what I have done that qualifies me in anything that I do. I have nothing to qualify me. I deserve nothing. But God is gracious and kind. If you look at the steps to our salvation, they are all an issue of grace. All of them. They're all about God's grace. So we find out that actually we are chosen by God's grace, by God's kindness. In Romans chapter 11, Paul is trying to show that God has not forsaken the people Israel. And he says that some have been saved through his ministry. And he says, and in the end, they all will be saved. And he compares this to the time of Elijah, Elijah, when there's a, a faithful remnant sort of left that had not bowed the knee to, to the gods of uh, at the time. And, he, and in this, he sort of says, he says, so uh, too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Literally, the, the Greek word is a remnant according to the election of his grace, according to the choosing of his grace. And then the apostle Paul goes on and he says, 
But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That is the closest definition that you can get in the Bible to grace. If you want a definition, there it is. Grace is God's nature to choose for him a people for himself. That's what God's grace is. God's grace is that he chooses you. His kindness comes and he says, I'll have that one. And there is nothing that you can do to make yourselves any better to make him and persuade him and twist his arm so that he will choose you. It is absolutely out of his kindness. He just does that. Not only are we chosen, but the Bible tells us that we are called according to his grace. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Paul describes this basis of our call on our lives. He says, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before all ages. Before all ages. And then he goes, before all ages, and he must stop and he goes, hmm, began. Which is wonderful. Because when did God call you then? Well, he called me when I was 14 or something like that. And I was at a mission and and God spoke to me and, and I responded to the gospel and I felt all gooey and I went up in front of people and some little guy shared the gospel with me and he put his hand on my head and, and that was it. And I went back and I told my mum and dad, rubbish. No, not ever. No, God called you before the foundation of the world. That's when you were on his heart. You weren't on his heart because you were in the context of a meeting. You weren't on his heart because you're good looking. You weren't on his heart. You were on his heart before the foundation, before ages began. Doesn't that make grace wonderful? It takes it into eternity. When were you part of God's plan? In eternity. When did God choose you? In eternity, call you. It's extraordinary. I love that, what, that word in 2 Timothy 1.9. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. How did he want to do this? Because of his purpose. He wanted to choose a people for himself. Didn't need to choose you. He wanted to choose you. It's an interesting one that if we move on, we're called, we're chosen, we're actually sanctified by grace, which actually would help you to know how much grace is impacting your life. How do we become this holy people that God has called us, this people of the, of the, Peter, of the book of Peter? How, have we, how do we become this? Well, the Apostle Paul tries to deal with this. The sanctification is that process where we become more like Christ. It'd be a good idea to just stop now and measure yourself. Give Christ 10. Okay. All the ones, put your hands down. It's the day by, na- uh, day, by day working out of what it means to be chosen, what it means to be called. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, Paul describes this. And in describing it, he's actually trying to work out what has happened in his own life because he describes himself and he says, look, I am the least of all the apostles. What is he saying by that? I can't understand how this has happened. That's basically it. That's where you should stay this morning. Stay there. I can't understand how this has happened, but it has. Therefore, I worship. 
And then he goes on in verse 10 and he says this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was what? Not in vain. Is that just the call? No. He goes and he says, on the contrary, I work harder than all of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God within me. The word sanctification is not used here, but it is described. We have a persecutor of the church being transformed into a hard-working apostle, obedient apostle. And three times in this verse, Paul says, I did nothing. It was the grace of God in me. So the grace of God, I, I am what I am. Wonderful. He also says, I work harder than you. And you should work hard, actually. The Bible tells you not to be lazy. I could sing to you a song about that, but I won't. I've got one from the past. But I want to just, try just, just say to this, how this works. It works like this. Where you are in the process of God making you Christ-like is just according to his kindness. You are where you are, Rupert, not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done in you. And what you will be tomorrow will be because of his kindness. You cannot do anything about You can't make yourself the greatest of apostles. Only he can do it. But there is another reason to that. There is a response to this that actually it is the process on which we become Christ-like. So grace affects us and we respond to it. So what the Apostle Paul was going, he was going something like this, this grace is extraordinarily good, therefore I think I'll do this. And he'll go, okay, right, here we go, let's do that then. And he'd go, and he'd stand there and he'd go, the grace of God is within me, okay, wow, let's step forward then. And some of the reason why some of you have stayed exactly as you are right now for the last 20 years is you have forgotten the grace of God in your lives. It doesn't affect you anymore. So when you worship and people go, what are they getting excited about? Come on, guys. You were saved by grace. You were chosen by grace. You are sanctified by grace. It's all grace. And that is the way that you move up in becoming Christ-like. The more you know about grace, the more that you will move into the things of God. Do not be complacent about God's kindness. So you are where you are by his kindness, and you move into being Christ by his kindness. Step out, enjoy. It's really funny, isn't it? I just thought it was funny. It just me. I know that I did the faux part. And just we're very English, but I mean, Steve was right, was he? We sort of say great scriptures, and we go, mm-hmm. They should deeply affect us. They should move us. Why? Why didn't they move it? Because it doesn't bother you anymore. It should bother you because Jesus wants to make you more Christ-like. Let it bother you. Let it get to you. Let it transform you because it's that that moves you. You don't do anything. You won't become great missionaries and great apostles by saying, here we go, it's to Africa we come. Get on the plane. No, the grace of God. Paul said, what does it do? It compels me, moves me. That's what the Paul did. He, went, he looked at Jesus and he went, I'm off then. And that's how we respond. We don't respond to, 
legalistic approach of no, get out there, leave them out there, God bless them. No, we said, no, grace is in within me. I'm doing this. I know that person. Why do I do this job? I don't know why I do. I am an utter idiot because of the kindness of God. I'll move on. What did you do? You believed through grace. Sorry, I shouldn't do that. It's the centurion. You get him in a bit. I'll press the wrong button. You believe through grace. Acts chapter 18, it says, When the apostle Paul wished to cross to Archaea, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace believed. How do you believe? It's grace. What makes you believe? God's kindness, God's grace upon you. Can you just believe? Yes, you can. You could get your teeth and you place them on your, t- on your bottom lip and then you press hard and go, believe. And there are people there that are just either going, let me just work that out. No. How, how, how have you believed? How did you come to believe? Is there anybody in this room that can actually say this? Well, actually, I was a rebellious person and I overcame it. Is that what you did? Did you? Is there somebody in this room that said, well, I had a heart of stone and I dealt with it. Just dealt with it, you know. Did you sort of say, "And, and, and I was an unbelieving person and now I'm full of faith. Yes, it was me. I did it. Did you sort of, not me, I was an agnostic, a skeptic. That was how I was brought up. And and I transformed myself into a believing lunatic that leads churches. No. No. What about some of you that would go and say, you should have seen my past. My past was horrendous. I was the most rebellious person on on the face of this earth. And then one day what I did is that I woke up and thought, do you know what? I will no longer be rebellious. And I went and I took the piercings out and you know and all that sort of stuff and I bought a suit and I put and I turned up at church and I put a tie on and then it was I was transformed in overnight. You should have seen what happened to me. My mother didn't know what had turned up in my house. I went out looking like some sort of obscure punk. I came back with a shirt and tie, and it was me. I transformed myself by going into Marks and Spencers. (laughs) Come on! No. By grace, the heart of stone was replaced with a heart of faith. By grace, the indifference was transformed into the zeal of God. By by grace, I believed. God's kindness came to me, and suddenly, you know, the light appeared. By the light came on. I believed. I saw. I caught. I captured, and I responded to it. That's how it happens. It's what happens. Do you know Paul and the Damascus Road thing? What happened? That's you. It's not him. It's not just a story. Oh, well, he and, and the, that the light came on. Your light came on in your way. But you were going this way, and you were going that way, and I'm going that way, and Jesus stood in front of you. And the light came, and you saw a blazing light, and you went, okay, I'm not going, I'm this way now. Because of the kindness of Jesus to stand in front of you. 
And how will you uh, get to heaven? By his kindness. That's how it is. How will you do that? I love this thing in 2 Thessalonians where it says in chapter 1, To this end we pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that you may fulfill every resolve for good work and every work of good faith by his faith. So in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we get glorified? By his kindness. It's grace that has saved us. It's grace that will lead us home. What will welcome us? His kindness. That's what we get. We get it perfect. It's wonderful. So, when we get finally glorified, our salvation will be complete and it will, we will be there in heaven because of his grace. And we'll sit there, won't we? You know what? You know, we have 10,000 reasons on earth why we have to... What is it? 1,000? I don't know. Whatever the album. But we have these sort of... Re- on earth, it's going to... Th- why are you there for eternity? Because it's going to take you eternity to understand the grace of God upon your life. That's why you're there. And it's, that's why it's... Well, how long will you be in heaven for? I'll be there three weeks, two days, nine hours, and 17 minutes. Three seconds. Do you know why it's eternity? Because the grace of God and his kindness, it's going to take you that long to catch it. Just to catch it. Because every time you're going to think, wah. It's going to take you eternity to just go, wah. That's what it's all about. It is wonderful. And so what can we conclude with all this? The Jewish leaders got it wrong. We do not deserve God's attention. You don't deserve it. That's the amazing point. It's all about grace. And it's grace that heals the the centurion servant in the end. An act of grace. And we must remember that. We must remember from bottom line, we deserve nothing. We got everything. Okay, you've you've pinched it, but there he is. This is a, a centurion in biblical times. This is what they all look like to Jesus, okay? I want you to comment on the huge nose because apparently all Italians have huge noses. <laughs> you'll, you'll get that one like Steve got it. Okay, the centurion was a commander of a hundred men. He was a Gentile. Uh, Josephus thinks that this um, Roman centurion was uh, a citizen rather than conscripted into the, and, uh, into the, uh, into the army, that actually he w- he'd been a Roman soldier that had risen uh, by rank. I don't know why Josephus says that. We just, uh, he just records that. Um, what, we, what was interesting is that um, we can only surmise this, is that this wasn't the first encounter with Jesus. One, uh, what people think is that John the Baptist actually uh, would have spoken to this actual centurion. So in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist said to him, Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So did he do the stuff with the synagogue because of a response to John the Baptist? We don't know. What we do know, that in that dialogue, John the Baptist explains exactly that he's not the Christ, that the Christ to come is, and maybe those words had just got into the life of the centurion, so the centurion knew where to go for help. Let me ask you this question. 
Really serious question. Do you still know where to go for help? Do you know that? Do you know that's the place to go? You go to Jesus for help. This is what the centurion got. But here it is. It says he had a slave who was terminally ill, who he holds in high regard. He said he was sick to the point of the death, who was highly valued by him. Now let's just clear some things up in regard to this. Such care was not universally practiced in Roman society. Basically, you kept a slave fit, well, alive, because he was useful to you. And if he wasn't, that was good. And when he, when I used to do that. Can you do that? You can't do that, Phil. Okay. Just checking. When, when you, did, you, did you not used to do that? When, when I was little, I used to do that a lot. Did you not do the horsey thing? Okay, you didn't. All right, okay. Did you not pretend? Come on, did none of you pretend to be horses? Thank you, thank you. Ralph's going, no, not me. No. I've never pretended to be a horse, but I still can't sing correctly and in line. But I got the blame. I was the sacrificial lamb for you, Ralph, today. So anyway, he was highly valued by him, uh, and, and they kept him because uh, he was. He, they kept them because they were useful to them. And the word "highly valued" actually speaks uh, more of friendship, although we don't know the nature of the friendship. But what we can say is that here we have a, an unusual situation where a Roman centurion actually cares about his slave. It was highly unusual. He was moved. He was moved by this person who he didn't have to be moved by. He was affected by him. It, had, it, it caused him to act. Basically, what the bottom line is here, let him die and I'll get another one. That's the nature of the Roman occupying at the time that they, that they would have done. He was he expendable. We can get another one. That's how he was. But not for this guy. He was not expendable. He, he felt for him. And actually, in doing so, his other Roman centurions would have thought him an idiot, would have thought him a fool. And this is unusual, because here we have a Roman centurion that actually is moved, and the word here that is used is the word compassion, that he's having compassion on a slave. There's a huge Christ-like thing in this, and we won't go there, although Phil's now moved to the edge of his seat to whether I'll say it, but I'm going to move on. I'll let Phil work that one out. There's a wonderful story in, in, in the book of Hebrews about the issue of compassion. Uh, and I, I've been very, I'm very affected by it. I have to say that I'm very affected by it because it challenges my very thinking. And I don't know whether you found this, but this centurion actually challenges my thinking. Because this centurion is saying to you, you have to care for things that you don't think that you should care for. That's what he's saying. That we have a responsibility of care beyond. That's what he's saying. And in the book of Hebrews, I'll read you the story, and this is just something that has affected me and, uh, and, and does affect me because I feel very challenged by it in my own life and feel very inadequate, if I may say that, in regard to my own life. 
In Hebrews chapter 10, we get this story. It says, But recall the formal days when you were enlightened, you endured hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Let me try and explain that story to you, and try and explain to you why it gets to me. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says that the early church had a hard struggle with suffering. So, It says, in the days when you were enlightened, you endured hard struggle and suffering. This was a persecution that was on the church. This wasn't some kind of um, so-and-so at work said to me, I don't like the shirt you're wearing and you're horrible. That is not persecution. You can live with that, okay? This was persecution because what the persecution was official, and we know that it wasn't a mob or anything like that, was that they were thrown in prison because of it. So this was big persecution. They were chucked in prison because they were basically being Christians. Verse 33 then shows you that there are two groups in the church. There's the first group. There's the group that have suffered abuse, and there's the group that have suffered afflictions. And the second one, the second group, is the the group that have identified with them, although they are not being picked out in the same way. So you've got the abused and the afflicted group, and they have been thrown into prison, and then you've got another group that are going, ah, I'm going to stand with that group. And that is what happened. So some were being publicly exposed, exploded. Some were being publicly exposed, to reproach, to affliction, and some of them uh, were just standing with them, standing with them. They were being partners in the persecution. Now, verse 34 takes it on a little bit further because it explains that the second group so showed, uh, so showed their solidarity for the first group. It says, For you had compassion on the prisoners, and you joyfully accepted the plundering or the confiscation of your own property. Now you would think, you're an idiot, wouldn't you? You'd think, they've gone to prison, they are the ones that have been persecuted, don't get involved with that group, because as soon as you do, it will come upon you. So the first group are in jail for some reason, And the second lot have identified them. And there's a moral difficulty here. Shall we take a low profile or shall we stand with the people that actually need us to stand with them? And they chose to take a huge risk. They chose to be compassionate towards this group. And the risk was so great that they lost their own property because they felt compassion for this group. It cost them their furniture, it cost them their homes, and even more, we don't know. We don't know that in identifying with them whether they actually may have lost their lives. But what is interesting with all this is that in verse 34, it says that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Now, I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine that they, they are having, uh, they're going to identify with this group over here, 
and that they're going to say, yeah, we're with you, we're standing with you, and that sort of stuff. And then somebody comes in and ransacks their house, and they're actually in some sort of worship meeting, and they're going, yeah, the double bed's gone. And then sort of, you know, it's sort of, the, no, they've knocked the walls down of our house. And they're worshipping like, I don't know, perhaps it wasn't like that, but that's the sense of it. And the reason that they say this is that because they were, verse 34, since you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. They had received a kingdom, as the book of the Hebrews says, that cannot be shaken. So what they said was this. They said, what God has given us is so much more important than anything else that we are prepared to stand with them, to lose everything because we have got a kingdom that cannot be shaken, an inheritance that we have been given to us in the Lord. It's ours. Now, I find that really radical. I find it a bit mad, really, until you hear Jesus. Because did Jesus not say... Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It says, Rejoice in that day, for great is your reward where in heaven. And if you look at the word compassion, the word compassion has five Hebrew words and, and eight Greek ones, and they overlap. And it says something like this. It says, it says things like to regret, to be sorry for, to grieve over, to spare someone. It describes it as an ex- emotional expressing and crying and feeling for someone who is hurt. The emotion also goes in, in, in the Hebrew and the Greek and it says it's not just crying over them. It's with an intent to help them. To to console them, not just by emotion, but by practical means too. It's a feeling of pity and devotion to what would be a helpless child. It represents uh, an emotion uh, by another person, another person's undeserved suffering towards them. When I was reading the story, this is what I felt God say this to me. So I'll just give you what God said to me. In regard to compassion, where's the slave that needs you? Where's, where's your slave? And I, and I would like to say this, that Christians can live in such an enclave, they forget there's a slave that needs you. That church becomes locked into meetings and structures and forms that we forget that there are slaves that need us. They need our first hour love and they need us to bring Jesus to them. I've deliberately missed out the authority issue to focus on compassion because the interesting thing about the issue of compassion is that when we have compassion in our heart, it moves us. And and it's a good thing. And I've been very challenged by this because I am often unmoved and what I sometimes feel is this. Compassion is, is, is sort of when we feel, we will move. Now, I've been in prayer meetings where people have played, prayed for the lost. Yeah? But we've done nothing about it. Do you know why? 
Because it you know, it's, it's just a meeting thing. It, we ne- it's something that needs to come upon us to move us. If, if we have compassion, we're moved by it. That's the bottom line. We're moved by it. That's how it works. So I want to ask you this question before we move on to Jesus, because I've knocked you down a bit, haven't I? Is this, you know, how about praying, Lord, give me a heart of compassion that moves me to act. Don't ask for a, a meeting compassion, because I've been in those, haven't you? Been in those meetings? I've been in meetings with tens of thousands of people where they've cried out for God for salvation. But they haven't gone and found a slave and helped him. And I, what do I want Gateway Church to be? I don't want us to be an enclave, guys. Stuck on a university. I want us to touch and shape the town. I want us to touch and shape the borough, North Wales, beyond. We, my prayer is this, Lord, stir my heart to move me. And finally, we get Jesus. I just want you to know that that is actually, that Da Vinci was wrong, that this actually is what he looked like, so that you would know. So when you get to heaven, if you see this guy, you'll know you're in the right place. If when you get to heaven and it doesn't look like this, you are definitely in the wrong place, okay? And it's too late. (laughs) They're all looking at this. Finally, I want to just do this. I want to be unashamed and upset Claire in the process. Because I found in doing this study, uh, Mark Driscoll very helpful. And I know at the moment, according to Claire, uh, that Mark Driscoll isn't the most helpful person on Facebook. But I want to say that in doing this, he was very helpful to me. And if anybody wants to have my name, the name of Gateway Church Wrexham, you can have it for free, okay? And we'd just like to say this publicly, that it isn't your name, Mark, it's in the Bible. Okay, let's clear it up. And if it's in the Bible, the name belongs to the Lord. Does it not? Yes. So, let, so let's act in grace. Okay, right, now we've said that just for Claire, let's move on. Anybody else that was thinking all about that, they go, what is he on about? See Claire. She will explain. Look at her Facebook status. It goes on rather. Anyway, <clears throat> What can we see about Jesus that is different to all these characters? Firstly, you can see that he is the sovereign ruler. I love this fact. I, what Jesus, what the, what the, uh, the centurion says to this, he says, is this. He says, I understand the chain of command here. I rule over a hundred guys and they're warriors too. And I look at you and I think, no, you're bigger than me. You, you understand, you're a completely different rank to me. I'm a centurion, you are Jesus. And that's the thing that grips him. And the Bible says that, doesn't it? He says, look, he has what? He doesn't say he has authority. The, the Greek and the Hebrew says this, he has complete authority. We sometimes, with the English misses it. No, he has complete authority. He is the sovereign ruler, the king of kings, the lord of lords. And you know, sometimes the Jesus that we worship is far too small. We have a sort of idea that, the, I know who Jesus is. He's the guy that helps me. It's that guy. He's the guy that, you know, if I need a little bit of advice, I go to and say, Now, Jesus, what, what do you think about my second year at university? 
And Jesus goes, really? Because actually, I don't know if you've worked it out, that the plans and purposes that God wants for you are his plans. You know, feel free to choose what, you know, come on. Be, be, be honest about these sort of things. We sort of make Jesus too small, don't we? He is, what is he? He's our comforter. You know, I, come, I come to meet with Jesus because he sort of he strokes my hair in a meeting. And I feel that sort of lovely glow of when I go out. And, you know, I, it's, it is like that, isn't it? Oh, the Lord blessed me. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face. To you. you know, he's that sort of thing. And who is Jesus? He's a friend. And, and, all. and of course, Jesus is all of those things. He is. But he is also the Christ. He's also the ruler of heaven and earth. He's also the saviour. He's also God. He's also king, judge. And I want to ask us this question. Do you understand the... the do you understand... The chain of command. What is the chain of command, firstly? It's not you. He's higher than you, bigger than you, larger than you. He is in control. What about when you read the news and the newspaper? Do you open and go, oh no. No, come on. God's in control. God's in control. You have to look at, you have to look at governments and nations and people. If we want to change things, we have to have a perspective of our God is big. He's mighty. He's an awesome warrior. What, what the centurion realized was that he realized this. He said, look, you, you guy, you're bigger than me. How, di- how did that affect him? He knew he could heal from a distance. Awesome, powerful stuff. You know, that's what he's... Can God change our nation? Yes! How can he do that? Because he's God. We have to have that perspective. Secondly, he's really humble. He's God, but he's also amazingly humble. This magnificent Christ, what happened? He came to earth as a man. Extraordinary. The, the king of kings became a man. And what does he do? He, he goes and preaches in towns and he goes to people. And when requested, he goes to the, the home of a centurion. What is he going to do? He's going to help. He's going to serve. He's going out. He is going out. And I don't know if you've worked this out yet, but if you look through all the Gospels, you find that he goes out and he preaches and he teaches and he casts out demons and he heals the sick and he raises the dead and he goes chasing after the lost. And unlike any other religion in the world where we go looking for God. In Christianity, it's all about God looking for you. That's what it is. Jesus comes and finds you. Do you know what, this morning? If you're not a Christian, and God is going to work on you right now, there ain't no you can do about whether you'll be saved or not. You, just, you can't resist it. The Bible talks about that. You can't, you can't do anything about it. If Jesus is coming to your house, Tofo, he's coming in. It's the way that it is. He knows you, he loves you, he's died for you, he pursues you. We have a God who comes after us. That's the wonderful thing. How far can I go? Can I go here? No. Can I go there? No. How could, why not? Because he's going to come after you. If you're backsliding this morning, he's coming after you. He's going to bring you back. 
If you're sinning, he's going to come and bring you back to himself. This is, he's the pursuer, humble pursuer of people. Thirdly, he's very global. I love this. We see Jesus in this story serving both Jew and Gentile. Don't you love that? Don't you love the fact that Jesus is not Welsh or English? Don't you love that? Don't you love the fact that just even this morning that the nations are gathered here, that actually salvation crosses all those sort of things? Don't you just love that? Don't you love what heaven will be like? We'll all be doing banger in heaven. Fantastic. My goodness me. We have a global saviour. And we need to preach that and, and live like that. Our church shouldn't be old. It shouldn't be young. It shouldn't be black. It shouldn't be white. It shouldn't be poor. It shouldn't be rich. It, shouldn't be, it should be made up of all of those things because the wisdom of Christ is putting all of those things under one head, him. He's global. What do you say about the fact that he's not the global thing? The global thing is really interesting, isn't it? I don't know where you've ever noticed this. If you, if you see somebody that's converted to being a Muslim, particularly a white person, you have to wear what they say, do what they do, and that's the stuff. No, you know, Jesus comes and he meets every nation and he transforms what? The inner person. That's the wonderful thing. It isn't, well, you've got, now you've got to be like this. No, you haven't. It's wonderful. I love it. We have a global saviour. Our message saves people all over the world. That's what it says. I love the fact that he responds to our voice. Fourthly, the centurion, uh, through the elders, goes to Jesus and asks a question. And Jesus says, okay. It's a form of like praying or asking, isn't it? But I just want to say this about this so that we're very clear in regard to this. You can't manipulate him. You can only tell him. You can only ask him. And uh, he says to him, you're the head of command. You're the commander. I can give you a request, but hear this. I cannot give you an order. Yeah? That's the idea of the chain of command. And you know, some of us, we give orders to Jesus. We sort of say, I, we almost go, I demand. And then what happens is you don't get it. And then you go, and I am angry. You have no right to be angry with God. He saved you. It's enough. And, and that's what we do. The order of command means that we can make a request, but we cannot give him an order. He's the commander. We are not. That's the way that that works. So what does that mean? But it also means that when we pray, he will hear what we ask, and then he will do what he thinks is best. Yeah? <laughs> Get it? Do I have to say something like this? Does God want me to lead uh, 50 people in Wrexham for the rest of my life? If he wants to, I'll do it. Does he want me to lead 1,000? If he wants to, I'll do it. And that's what we have to do in regard to praying. We have to come back to him and say, look, you know, I love this. I really desire this, but he's the commander. He, he answers how we see fit. I love the fact that he sort of does things beyond boundaries. Don't you? I love that about our prayer meeting when we're praying. 
I, I just love the fact that there is no boundary here. The centurion sort of comes out, and, he's, and by the time the centurion guy gets back, his servant is, is healed. Is that your God? Is that the God that you know? Do you know that you're praying and you can affect things in other nations and, and shape things right across the face of this earth? That's who God has built. He's built a kingdom because God is ruling over time and space. So God can say, can't he? Yeah, okay, we can do this. He can save, he saves and blesses from his throne to earth. So it doesn't matter where you are, guys. You, you, he can do this stuff. He can do it. So I want you to know that. I want you to know that, that God doesn't look at it in terms of, well, this is just a bit, you know. No, it isn't. God can act anywhere, anytime, anyhow. He can just break through. He's, the Bible word for it is, is his transcendent. The barriers of earth are not restricted to him. They're just not. He's God. And the barriers on earth are the ones that he created anyway. That's why they're not restricted. He's transcendent. He can save. He can bless. He can come to this house. He can break through. He doesn't need to go anywhere. (laughs) He can break through and do it. I love the fact that he is a healer. Don't you? (laughs) And when they... Those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Wow. Okay, just for the people that are theologically sharp, well, he, we might get to heaven and he doesn't, you know, the ultimate healing, you know, will be in heaven. Hallelujah. God's good. When I get to heaven, just rubbish, will you? That's like, it's like, why then did Jesus bother to heal on earth? He could have just come, died on the cross, gone through, preached, gone to heaven, come back. Why on earth? It's a demonstration of the kingdom of God. The demonstration of who God is, is God heals. That's it. It's no good saying, yes, well, when I get to heaven, mm-hmm, new body, I'll be rejoicing. Come on, guys. Do you know what we need to be doing? We need to be responding with compassion, which is where we're going, and praying for the sick far more than we do. And not just in church. This was not in a church meeting. We need to stop, don't we? When somebody, you know, and you're in front of that person in Tesco's, and they're going, oh, no, my back's really, in Jesus' name. Just, just grab them. Just do it. Whip them onto the, the track that goes like that. Lie them down. They'll keep coming back. Because And just get, go, oh, just do it. It's the way that we should be. This, the demonstration of the kingdom of God is in the streets. It's not in the church. Although you did get the healing in the, in the temple. But the majority of stuff is out there. Two things and we'll finish. What, what do we find here? He's greater than the centurion. The centurion's job was to go into battle and as necessary to lay down his life for his others so that others could be blessed. He, he knew in signing his contract that he might die and he signed a contract so that others may live. Well, that's what centurions do. I'm prepared to die that others might live. He also signs another contract 
And he says, I, I am prepared to die so that others might be free. Now, think of that in terms of Jesus. Jesus is greater than that and has signed a contract in heaven so that he might die so that you might live and that he might die so that you might be free. That's our Jesus. He is a greater warrior. Lastly, he's the better servant in the end. What happened with this guy is this this Roman centurion said, this this one's worthy of, of me looking after him. He's faithful, he's dependent. Jesus is always the better servant. Jesus suffers, doesn't leave his duties, goes all the way to the cross, suffers in our place, dies for us in our place. Jesus serves us by saving us and will serve us in heaven. There's a wonderful expression about the service of Jesus in heaven where he says he continues to do it in heaven, where he says he wipes away every tear from our eye. He serves us on earth, washes our feet, serves us, takes the form of a servant, and then in heaven continues as a servant by receiving you and wiping away your tear. How will you meet Jesus, the servant? Well, I'll meet him and go, heaven! Here you will but there's some tears to be wiped away. And he will do that for you. So this is the Jesus in whom we love and serve. Amen.